part three in program two, the final part. And this evening on Where the Road Takes Me, I'm speaking again to John O'Brien, originally from Ballinhasig, who reached the rank of Detective Chief Superintendent in the Gardaí before retiring in 2006. John, who in the latter part of his career was based at Garda headquarters in Dublin, was also head of Interpol and Europol. His third and his latest book is entitled The Troubles Come South, Murder and Mayhem. It's a detailed account of how the Northern Troubles impacted on the Republic. It includes John's personal stories, the impact of the Troubles as they are known as, and their legacy. When I was reading your book last evening and I came across a line in it and I went back and I read it again, you said, based on research, the RIC or RUC are a paramilitary force based on the British colonial model. Just expand on that for me, John. Yeah, and that's an objective quote from the literature and I may even quote an authority, I think I do, in, in relation to uh, in relation to that. Uh, fundamentally, the RUC and the RIC before them were based on the colonial model, which is, and that model was based on the idea of hiring local police from the population, managing it and running it by a different cohort of officers who came absolutely from the British tradition. And in very simple terms, the idea was, in times of conflict, to maintain the British control of the colonial bit. And the same model applied right across the world where when I was young, I went to school, the map was almost uh, 80% red. That was the model that was applied. You use the locals as the foot soldiers, or you use your own people, for want of a better word, either, uh, either from a political persuasion or a religious persuasion, they then run it. And the lower ranks of the organization can never achieve permanency in the uh, access to the top ranks of the organization. So it's a, it's a dual model in that sense. You use the foot soldiers locally and you use your own political allies, if you want to say that, or your own class to manage the organization. And primarily it's directed towards times of you know political conflict or uh, unrest in normal times. And there have been many more normal times, you know, when you're just simply dealing with, in inverted commas, normal policing. That uh, model would then uh, go along smoothly. You know, if you look at the old census records from 1901 or 1911 for your own house or family, you'd see the census was taken by an RIC constable. You know, you'd see the signature at the bottom of the form. So there's many routine things, but it is essentially a system of maintaining control in times of unrest. And it is based on the principle of policing colonially as distinct from the Republic, which is policing by consent. The people here agree to be policed. Now, sometimes we won't be happy about everything we're being policed for, but there is an agreement. So they are well described in the literature, John, by others other than John O'Brien, in terms of those two models, policing by consent and policing in the colonial sense. When you bear in mind all the, the murders and shootings and bombings carried out by all sides, do we really know the extent of collusion, be it from the army or the police or what? That is a very relevant question. And often there is a kind of a sleepwalking in the Dublin end in relation to the extent of collusion. And the, the man that I'm going to quote to you, I may have mentioned before, is uh, Sir John Stevens. I think he's Lord Stevens now. He's a former commissioner of the Metropolitan Police in London. And in the start of the 1990s, he was given the job of examining the extent of collusion with by state forces with loyalist paramilitaries in the north. That was his job done. And it was expected to be, you know, a quick job and it would be over quickly. But in actual fact, it took him through different episodes 10 years to do it. And just one very stark line, John, is at a select committee in the House of Commons, he was asked, what was the extent of collusion that he uncovered in his investigations? And were very detailed and very thorough. 
And he said of the 210 people that we arrested, in other words, he's looking at people who were involved in the murder of sectarian murders in the North, he said, only three of them were not agents of the British. Just think about that for a second, John. They even do it as a kind of a, as a three divided by 210, yeah, or the other way around. 207 of those people who, who were involved in serious crime uh, were agents of the British. Now, yeah. in different aspects of the British, you talk about the army, uh, or you see special branch, uh, different elements, MI5, and so on, and different degrees of complicity, John. Now, Nura alone, who was the ombudsman in the North, first ombudsman in the North, they absolutely made the same finding. So I'm always looking to look at the at the where there's empirical evidence by people who would normally, you would think, John, be expected to say, no, no, there was a few isolated apples in the barrel and blah, 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 but by and large, it went well. Those are the facts. And one could write, uh, you know, a library full of books on that particular contention of collusion. And that's frightening. It's absolutely frightening. Totally, the, 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 I am so disappointed that, that from the Dublin end, uh, and certainly from the 2000s on, that there was no awareness of how significant that was. I also discuss it in, the, in my book, I call it Collusion South, when it looked like the political process was going to lead to a new dispensation you know, in terms of power sharing in the North and what have you. There was a concerted effort by elements in the North, political and otherwise, to indicate that there was also manifest collusion in the South. And part of that was the political action and the representations and the evidence that was given to the Smithic Tribunal in relation to the guards and Dundalk. It was a, a, it seems crazy when you say it, but it's true. It was like an attempt to balance the collusion scales. In other words, there was collusion on our side because we were saying it ourselves, our own, our own invest, investigators are saying it, but it was also collusion on the other side. And the idea, of course, was to equate the two and to get both to disappear into the kind of the fog of history, John. Returning to the Dantidi kidnapping is released on December 16th, 40 years ago, and the shooting dead of trainee guard Gary Sheehan and Army Private Patrick Kelly. This was Dorada Wood in Ballinamore and County Leitrim, where Dantidi was held. It's a remote area and would not have been known to the kidnappers, so it's firmly believed that local help was definitely sought and given. Afterwards, TV journalist Brendan O'Brien returned to the area looking for the sentiments of local people and asking them, after Sunday Mass one day, if they would inform the Gardaí they were aware that kidnappers were holding somebody in the area. The main reply he got was, no comment. John O'Brien believes that while there was a certain amount of support for the kidnappers in the area, the comments of those people reflected a sense of fear of retribution if it was known that they had informed. It was out of fear, as distinct from from outright loyalty, because there are many Garda colleagues from Leitrim. As a matter of fact, sometimes we thought there was too many Leitrim men in the Guards. And so there's a really good family connection with the, the people of Leitrim. But there was also, an, a, a, in that particular town, in that particular area, there was a very strong, in inverted commas, Republican element that had been involved in, in the arms business for quite a long time. And while Leitrim 
if you're looking from a Southern Irish per- perspective, seems way up there and the border further away. In actual fact, Ballinamore is probably 45 minutes from the border. So it is a very adjacent in terms of being a bolt hole or whatever, and particularly with local support. And of course, there was local support uh, for them. It was cars uh, made available to them. There was uh, the, the um, you know, simply the logistics of feeding and mining and, and guiding and stuff and so on. Now, clearly... That web of concealment had been broken in the in the operation that was launched by 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 the guards. But it's always very very difficult. I mean, I think of Tommy Mick. You know the famous line, uh, you know, whatever you say, say nothing. You know, so if you <laughs> yeah, put yeah. Uh, in the public gaze, if you go to somebody after an atrocity like that has been committed, where you know there is a Republican hinterland and some very determined uh, people. Uh, you know, who are totally wedded to the idea of physical forces being the way forward for Ireland, then you, you're not going to open your mouth. Now, you might do things privately, and I have no doubt that people did, but on the main street in Bandamore, and I know there are many fine people in Bandamore, I have personal reasons for saying that, so I'm very, very slow to, you know, to do, the, do to uh, simply damn everybody with the same with the same praise. But there are many other incidents in the last period of the Troubles would have their origin in Bandamore, including the murder of uh, Lord Mountbatten, and that's another story. The people involved in that, they were never arrested, were they? They were never arrested, John. They Many years later, a guy was, was put on trial, maybe, God, maybe 20 years later, and was eventually acquitted because, of course, the whole witnesses had gone, some had died, and so on and so on. So nobody was ever convicted of that killing. Incidentally, there is an interesting parallel because in 1970, when Garda Dick Fallon, 3rd of April 1970, was shot uh, at, at a bank raid in Dublin, the people uh, believed to be involved in his killing were named in the Sunday papers two days later. Very important. These were Sayerera, a breakaway Republican group, and they were named. Now, the people involved in Bandavore were known, absolutely have no doubt about it. Not Maybe not every last single one, but the state on that occasion did not take the option, which of course was to name them. Now, there's a way of doing it. We're familiar now from modern times, you call them person of interest, or we believe that A, B, and C can help us with our inquiries, we'd ask them to come forward. But it's a way of increasing the pressure on the individuals concerned and also on the people who support them. That option was not taken. This was not a good uh, time. I mean, the 80s was bad for the guards. I think eight guards were murdered during the 1980s, the biggest total in the actually in the history of the guards in, in a significant period of time, probably with the exception of the during the Second World War. Finally, John, before we leave it, looking back on your almost 40 years in the force, can I ask you for your best memory and your worst? <laughs> okay. The best memory I had to do with the work I did with the Operation Lifesaver, which started in 1997, and that was the, the road safety initiative that I was lucky enough to, to lead off from the guards, where literally thousands of people had been killed on the Irish roads for many, many years. And in 97, I was given the job of looking at the problem and uh, got the opportunity of going off to Australia, would you believe, to Victoria, where they had a model, a model that I brought back and was adopted. And now together with a lot of, uh, together with a lot of help from other agencies, you know, these are never one-man shows. There was a remarkable reduction in road deaths, uh, you know, in the succeeding years. Like, for instance, in 97, John, 1997, hard to believe 472 people were killed on the roads. In 2022, it was 156. And this year, it's back up to probably uh, close to 160 at this stage. And each one of those is regretted. So yeah, it's not a question of saying. But And that was done by using a systems approach. Your targeted enforcement, all of us are the same. 
you know, if we think that's a, a, a probability of being caught doing something that, you know, that has a bearing in this case on road safety and on road deaths, then we're not going to do it. There's a sanction. But the system now, that's the happiest part of it. And I think that was most things we do in the guards. You know, if you're active in the investigation front, you're arresting people. You know, there's a lot of adversarial stuff. That was a very positive stuff. I think the saddest thing that I feel at this stage is that that particular initiative has become bloated and distorted in the succeeding years. The guards had a very good technical ability in terms of speed detection, and that was privatized, I think, around 2010. And there's a whole lot of other agencies involved now, and it's become unwieldy. It's The whole effort is run by two different government departments, the Department of Justice, the Department of Transport. You know, you know the tight, narrow, focused operational approach has has dissipated. Now, I hope they'll get it back on, on stream, and I know that uh, Jack Chambers, the minister responsible in transport, is making you know very strong attempts to do that, including the, the drug driving testing and so on. But that makes me very happy. Uh, that that we succeeded in reducing the road deaths through concerted action. It does need to be looked at again using a different approach. The problem that was there in '97 is not the problem that's there in 2023, John. So it's a question of adjusting the thing. So they they are both ends of it, but there are many many more things that give me great enjoyment. And you know, representing Ireland abroad at Interpol and Europol, uh, s- sitting behind the seat with the little tri- with the tricolour in front of you. You know, they're all proud moments. And my colleagues who worked uh, in the in faraway fields, both in the UNN, UN and representing Ireland in the different embassies as liaison officers, these, they were fantastic uh, times and great experience. So it's not all doom and gloom, but really take a good dose of reality, I think I would say to the politicians and the leaders and the guards when you look at where you're going right now. John, I just want to say to you that I want to thank you for this opportunity of talking about my book in terms of The Troubles Comes Out, Murder and Mayhem. And there is much, much more that we could possibly have the opportunity of discussing in the context of this interview. But again, I'm very grateful for the opportunity of doing it, and I hope that people will find it interesting. And interesting indeed you will find it. The Troubles Come South, Murder and Mayhem is written and published by John O'Brien. It's available from the Bandon Bookstore in the Riverview Shopping Centre in Bandon or from John O'Brien himself. Email jaobrien.ie or phone 01254-8442. My thanks to John O'Brien for joining me over the past two weeks and thank you for sharing an hour of your Sunday evening with me. Where the Road Takes Me, it returns on Sunday evening next at 7 on C103. But until then, this is John Green, hoping you enjoy the remainder of your Sunday and do have a good and a safe week.